Proverbs, starting in verse 17 and verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for time of adversity. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. One with too many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make glad the heart. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. This is the word of the Lord. As you go through Proverbs, as we are exploring a few this summer, the goal being to be people of wisdom, there are um, two things that the Proverbs reveal that get in the way of wisdom. Uh, The first is that if we are not people of worship, the worship of the God of all creation who came in Jesus Christ, who showed us uh, himself and all of his glory, if we do not worship him, we cannot be people of wisdom. We're not people of worship because we will then be incongruent with the one who created uh, all things and therefore live our lives in ways that are incongruent with his wisdom and his love. And so the first thing we learn is that you can't be a person of wisdom if you're not a person of worship. We talk about that often. This morning, I want to touch on one of the other strong themes through Proverbs, which is you can't be a person of wisdom unless you invest in good friendships, unless those who are closest to you who are speaking counsel to you, share uh, the wise and humble and loving wisdom of God. This morning we're going to look at three aspects of friendship. There's many, many more, of course, but three will suffice for today. Um, The first being the foundation for friendship, and the foundation for friendship being shared values. Secondly, we'll look at the keys to enriching friendship. And throughout the wisdom literature, those keys keep showing up in different ways. And the keys to enriching friendship look a lot like commitment and consistency and candor with care. And then lastly, we'll look at the gift and grace for friendship. Which is that, of course, united to Christ, we have the privilege of being called the friends of God. So that's where this whole thing is headed. But let's go back to the beginning and explore just quickly the foundation for friendship, these shared values. I'm not going to say much about this. We're going to spend most of our time... The other two points. Um, The shared values. We know this to be true in our own experience. I coach baseball here in the city. And uh, there was a a team that didn't have enough players. They reached out and they said, um, can your son play for this other team? I said, sure. So Nigel went and played for one of the other teams. And, uh, you know, two-hour baseball game. Not very long. Unless you scored 28 runs like the Jays did recently. Then the game gets a little bit longer. But two hours. And... um, he makes this friend. And the reason I know that he makes this friend um, is that we were playing that same team later. And uh, when Nigel came up to the plate, this kid that I'd never talked to a day in my life or knew who he was is in center field. And I hear him go, oh, man, this is Nigel. Guys, this is Nigel. He always hits to the right. You've got to move back. He starts telling people, oh, this kid's crazy. Oh, this is, and he's joke. oh man, I like Nigel. Nigel told me this joke. Nigel drew this thing on his batting helmet. He drew Batman back there. And, he's, and I'm looking at this kid and I'm like, who is this person? They only spent two hours together, shared values. 
Baseball. Shared values is the foundation for friendship. That's not enough, by any means. Shared values is not enough for friendship. You know this to be true. But that's where it begins. You go to a conference, people are like-minded. You're having lunch, you meet some friends. You have a discussion with somebody. Ah, they lean the same way you do in terms of your political ideologies. Ah, the friendship starts to form. You're talking about vocation, interests, what you like to do on your holidays. Oh, wow, I feel the same way about that. And on and on it goes. Art, music, film, right? literature, vocational pursuits, educational interests. The shared values are the foundation for friendship. There's a writer, you familiar with him, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who uh, was an Anglican minister who moved from vocational ministry to writing and, and doing other things uh, as, a, as, as a different form of vocational ministry out of, uh, or sorry, out of the vocational ministry of the church and using his gifts uh, in other contexts. And Emerson wrote an essay on friendship, and as I was reading through it, uh, preparing for this morning, came across an interesting phrase uh, which said, um, friendship doesn't begin with, do you love me? Friendship begins with, do we love the same truths? Now, I want to draw your attention to verse, uh, chapter 27 and verse 9. If you look at it, it says, oil and perfume make glad the heart, and there's a sweetness of a friend that comes from his earnest counsel. I just want to draw your attention to that word sweetness for a second. Um, there's a, com- a commentary I came across on this verse uh, by Dr. Tim Keller, author and was a pastor in New York City for years. And he made an interesting observation about why they chose the adjective, the sweetness of the friendship. Because today, as moderns, we can sweeten anything with various sweeteners. And in the ancient world, sweetness to food wasn't something so much that you did, so much as it was something you discovered. You discovered a food that was sweet, or you discovered something that was sweet. Uh, By and large, you didn't live your life day in and day out sweetening things. And so there's a discovery element to friendship, where it begins with the shared values, and this is all by discovery. Uh, Author uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his work on the four loves, put it this way. There's a typical typical expression uh, of opening friendship, and it often begins like, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. So there's this side-by-side element to common interests and passions and these sorts of things that begin our fr- friendship. We've, many of us have experienced this. And we know that's not enough for friendships to have any sort of depth, but it is definitely the, the, the starting point. It's definitely foundational. And if we're going to be people of wisdom, then the foundations of which the closest people to us, in terms of their, their values and their ideologies, is something that we want to consider very, very carefully. Uh, it's important that just as Jesus went into the city and had lunch and had uh, loving, and, uh, loving and caring relationships with those who were nothing like him, nothing like his father, and did not share the worship of the one true God, so should we be in this city to have relationships with people uh, who, who uh, don't share our faith or our values. So don't misconstrue where the sermon is heading that all of our friends ought to be the people in this room. But what I do want to say is that unless we are examining the shared values at the core, the voices in our lives, um, then we will not be people of wisdom, but we will be uh, increasingly and over time foolish. And this is because foolishness uh, throughout the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, often the fool is not an unintelligent person. The fool often falls into two different categories. The category of not listening to anybody. They are therefore a fool. They're the smartest person in the room all the time. Or... They listen to everybody. And for the purposes this morning, and some of the, I've only chosen a few, but of some of the 
texts that we get from, uh, from the scriptures encouraging us in being wise with our friendships, you can see that the ruin can come to us when the foundation of friendship and shared values, those who have our ear, who speak into our ideologies, are those who actually don't share um, our worldview as it relates to God and the humble and wise guidance of his word as it was pertained to the way we would handle our time, the way we would relate to family, the way that we would handle our finances, the way that we would consider sexuality or anything else whereby we would define ourselves as a person. How is it that we arrive at all of these things and what is informing these thoughts uh, if it's not people who share our, uh, the values of uh, the wise guidance of God's word? Uh, then we can love the wrong things or we can love good things in the wrong way. So that's the beginning of friendship is this foundation of shared values. Uh, Let's move on. There's an opportunity that's afforded to us as a church here where we walk into this room and we all share, I would argue, the ultimate value. We share the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate who came Uh, To not just live as a moral example of love and grace, though of course he did. And was a wonderful teacher, which no doubt he was. But he did not come to be a teacher. We already had teachers. He came predominantly as Savior. The one who looked into the brokenness of humanity and said, You will not, through your wisdom and endeavors and ingenuity and intelligence and politics and free market or whatever, you will not fix this. You need a wise king. I will come, the creator, to come and bring redemption. We believe this. So as we walk into this room, you are sitting around people who share at the the deepest and most profound level your faith as a powerful foundation for friendship as we all gather on Sunday mornings. So let's move on because, of course, we have to build on that. The keys to enriching friendship are this consistency, this commitment. There is a candor and a care. Right? It isn't enough to just say, well, we all believe in the resurrection, so therefore that's enough um, for us to be clo- have close and deep uh, friendships in this room. We have, to, there's, we have to develop relationships that are discovered um, as we find those common values and discover those. So let's look back at 17, chapter 17 and verse 17. A friend loves at all times. Um, loving at all times, all kinds of times. Good times and the bad times and the mundane times and the routine times. All kinds of times. And I think this teaches us something significant, which is that as a community of faith, we can't really develop any friendships in this room without availability. Because you can't love at all times without availability. The significance of this, of course, is that we've got to sometimes make availability. Because we live in busy Kitchener Waterloo, we are modern North Americans, and we live in a culture where everybody's running after the busy badge. The busier you are, the, the greater you are a resource to the city and uh, as a person, and the busier you are, and the more things you have going on. So we have to make ourselves available. If I was to look at this and say, how could I even be a person who loves at all times? There's got to be an availability there. Um, that is the difference between saying, Hey, I'm, I'm here if you need me, and I'm on my way. And so there is a depth to this love, this loving at all times. And it's actually a pretty provocative statement because it goes on to say that um, friends at all, loves at all times. And you'll see the text goes on um, to say that a, bro- a brother is born for a time of adversity. We can have siblings who are there for us 
when the chips are down, uh, when times get rough, when things are terrible. Um, because there's an obligation as family. Some of us have been there. You're there some, one of your family members is, is in a difficult time and needs something and you're there for them. And that's part of what it means to be family. But this is actually sort of provocative language. Even the other one that says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You see that other text up there. All this provocative language in a culture that actually was quite traditional and quite familial and really put a high priority on family to even say something like there is a friend, that, there is a kind of friendship that's closer than sibling relationship. It's a provocative statement because what it's saying is the friend is chosen to be there. We can be there for our families but not even particularly like them. That's possible. That's all around this room where there's like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Uh, I'm going to be there, I'm going to love you, I'm going to care, I'm going to give this time, I'm going to do this thing. But, there's, but, but if, I, if I didn't have to do this thing out of a sense of duty or obligation, I'm not sure that, I, that there's an affinity. Whereas you see, with the friendship, it's offering something that even is, is possible that siblings don't have, which is, well, I don't actually have to be here because I'm not your family, and I don't have some sort of familial obligation to walk with you through this but because of my love for you and my commitment for you and there's a consistency, just this outward-facing, outward-pouring sort of friendship, this is the keys to enriching it. Now there's, an, there's, an, there's a, an application to all of these scriptures that is easy and difficult. The easy application would be, as I'm going through these things and just sort of putting out some thoughts that exist in the literature that we can sort of explore and look at, the easy application is to sit there and diagnose all your friends. And see faces. Be like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, actually, that friend and this one, well, they're pretty good, they're not. And that is good and helpful. That sort of diagnosis, what kind of relationships do I have in my life? Wise. But it's easier. The more difficult application would be that as I'm walking through some of these thoughts in these texts, that we're asking ourselves, what kind of a friend am I actually? How available am I? Can anybody break into my routines, my schedule? I don't know if you've ever noticed when someone that you know is going through a hard time, but it's never really a good time for you. Have you noticed that? Nobody ever texts you or calls you and is like, oh man, I'm going through this thing. And you're like, oh my goodness, it's so providential because I have nothing on my schedule this week. I can give hours and hours to you. I can be a listening ear. I can sit and have coffee with you because I just have nothing on. It never happens. So the harder application is how vulnerable and willing am I to be this kind, be this kind of a, a person to give my life away in this way. If you look at um, Proverbs eighteen twenty four, there, there's another provocative thought about, friend, about the, the friendship, the key to enriching it, I think, the opposite of it would be, it says too many companions can bring you to ruin. And what could this possibly mean? None of us have enough friends, it would seem. So how could too many bring us to ruin? Again, as we think about it, well, what, are, what could the values of these folks be? Are we, like the children of Israel, historically speaking, drawn here, there, and everywhere with different ideologies? being swept away in the current of a culture where friendship looks like sitting down and going, hey man, you be you. You know, you say all the problems and you say everything that, that's going on and the difficulties and the stresses and all that ever gets fed back to you is, hey man, you are so right. 
Oh my gosh, they are so out of line. That is so, like if, if this is the companions, this, is, this trajectory is not good. The highest and most important thing in your life is to be happy. Oh my goodness, this thing going on in your life is not bringing you happiness? Cut it off. Get rid of it. Life is too short. There could be all kinds of ways that having many companions brings our, could possibly bring ruin. And it's interesting that, the, that, in that even in that, in, the, in that line there in chapter 18, that there's a distinction between many companions and then friends. And even just the usage of those, those uh, two different words to get us to consider that one can be acquaintances and there's not a depth and there's not a richness and there's not a closeness. There's just lots of bodies around versus a handful, one, two, maybe two or three people that are close that we can really share our lives with. It goes on to say that a friend loves love at all times, a brother's there for adversity. And as we said before, this all flows from this sense of commitment of passionate love. You'll see the, the phrase sticks closer than a brother. Sticks, cleaves. It's just, this, just this image of like really giving yourself away. This is really difficult stuff to do. But this is the stuff that friendships are made of. If we think of the context of our little faith community here. The question is not um, how big is the church or how small is the church or... How friendly is the church? The question really is, how, will, how willing am I to give myself away and uh, just be available and be open? And, and none of us are going to be close, intimate, deep friends with everybody in, in this room, 200 deep, rich. No, that's not realistic. But it is realistic that in a faith community, in this faith community, that there could be a handful of people that we can really go through life with, go through difficult times with. But it's difficult. It's hard. We can't just manufacture it. Can't be like baseball. Oh, you like baseball? I like baseball. Hey, depth. It starts there, though. Make no mistake about it. Because you can't just walk into. Uh, I, suppose, I suppose this might be for many of the students that have joined us in the last few months. Uh, not not only you, but those of you who've moved into the city from from other places, or you've joined Redeemer in the last year, and you're still really forging friendships. None of us can walk into a church and say, "I believe in the resurrection." That's enough. Love me. Befriend me. Friends, please. This is anecdotal, but I've been in full-time pastoral ministry since 1995. And I've had a lot of people request as a pastor if I could sort of curate friendships. It's never worked once. Pastor, and you say, oh, but the church is too big. Granted, once a community gets over 150, we're kind of pushing that now. You, it's difficult to f- have a sense of community where you, you know everybody. So that's difficult. That's, that's, we're in an interesting time as a church where the growth has come really quickly. So that's okay. Just going to take a little bit of time. Commitment, consistency. That's all right. So there is something to be said for when communities get too large. However, I'll tell you, and many of you will know this, you can walk into a place where there's 20 people. I mean, when we, when we started this church, there, was, there were Sundays when there was like 20, 20 people here. And it's not like the guests walk in and said, Perfect! There's only 20 people. I like small churches. Friends. No. You can't curate it. Can I give of myself? Can I be a person of consistency and commitment and stay the course and take time and, and uh, to develop these friendships? Um, it's, you know, giving this gift of vulnerability and openness. 
and uh, being there for one another. Now, there's two verses that I intentionally chose that are the opposite of everything I'm saying. I just threw them in there uh, because they're just a, a, a great poetic contrast of everything that I'm saying. So let's just look at them for a second. There's many more in Proverbs. You could do this exercise. You could say, that was an interesting sermon. I'm going to blow this exercise out and go through everything I can see on friendship and foolishness. You could take this to a whole other level, but I'm just getting you started. So let's take these two verses um, 1820 and 2618, the first one, there are are people who relate to relationships like coming and taking away a garment on a cold day. (laughs) Middle of the blizzard, I'd like to take your coat, please. Doesn't feel good. Uh, There are like vinegar in a wound, singing songs into the heart of a person going through sorrow. Just this picture of sort of being oblivious to the needs of others around us. And then just this vivid, vivid image in 26 of the maniac throwing flaming arrows. The maniac is throwing flaming arrows of death. You know this is verbally, right? Flaming arrows of death. You know this is not only verbally, but experientially the way in which they're relating. And then when there's hurt or there's sorrow or there's offense or there's impact of some kind, and they get feedback that somehow their flaming arrows of death have not been received well, the response to the feedback is never to own it. The response to the feedback is, I was on hell, whoa, whoa, take a joke. Take a joke. The problem isn't me, it's you. Don't give me feedback on the way that I am being in this relationship. The problem is clearly you. When uh, in the last, I don't know, would it be five, eight years when the term gaslighting really became something that we were all like immediately familiar with. For many of us, we were like, we we're like, oh, that term perfectly describes many situations that I had experienced before I knew what the term meant. And these, this is an example of, of re- in relating to people with this emotional disconnectedness, just relationally obtuse. All of this is sort of saying, you know, I, don't, I either don't know enough about you to know if what I'm saying is hurtful or I'm just sort of barging through life and uh, I just hit self-defense when I get feedback that what I'm saying is, is, is hurtful. But these are pictures of the opposite of candor with care. You see, that, so the, there's the commitment and consistency, but then we, we want friendships where there is candor and honesty, but with care. Not, not just hiding behind the excuse, which is unwise, to say, you know, well, hey, man, I just got to be honest. What, I can't be honest? What, I can't say what I... See, what this does is this is the destruction of intimacy. It's the destruction of vulnerability. Being a, a friend of candor and care is really difficult to do. Here's the ditch I fall into. Because I want to be liked chronically... Uh, sadly, it is difficult to, for me at times to speak with candor. Partly because I struggle with wanting to be liked all the time. That is true. I wish to God that I only feared him and not man. It's not true. I'm growing. I'm more mature than I used to be, but I'm definitely not there yet. So that's part of my problem. Here's another part of my problem, though. I suffer from a condition which is... I'm certain that the way that I see something is the right way. 
And so then when I speak with candor, it often comes with a vibe of authority and certainty that's like an electromagnetic pulse that just sucks the energy out of the room. So I need, I'm talking about me now, you think about your problems, I'm just let, giving you a window into mine, so hopefully this is helpful with yours. I need the wisdom of God to be a loving friend so that I can speak with candor that is received as care. Not that I speak with candor, because I do it all the time, I, do, I mean, sadly I do it with my wife because she's the closest to me, do it with my kids, and they'll, my family will just be like, whoa, dad, whew, whoa. And my initial reaction is I want to be like the flaming maniac with the arrows and be to my family, yo, I'm dropping wisdom bombs here. I don't know what your problem is, why you're not <laughs> catching when I'm laying down. The response is to be, oh Lord, candor with, with, with the care. That's the struggle for me. The other struggle for, perhaps you're late or perhaps you don't, the other struggle for some of you is you don't have a problem with candor at all. But you struggle with the, but you do struggle with the care. I'm just being honest. I'm a person who's got to call a spade a spade. Also, you're prickly. Also, nobody's close to you. Right? You don't have deep, rich relationships because you repel people. Um, I've done it. I'm not preaching down to you, by the way. If you're like, oh, that's me, the preacher is fine. Like, I am with you in how terrible this is. And like you, if you've ever driven home after a conversation going, I've done it. Right? And the whole way home, it's the woulda, coulda, shouldas of how I could have framed something. So to enrich our friendships, it can't just be, oh man, you're the greatest, you're the best, and care, care, with no candor. We will not be wise people if we surround ourselves like that. We will not be good friends if we're that way. But it also can't be constantly combative. If you're the kind of person who's like, oh, I just love a debate. I just like to wake up and have debate for breakfast and then have some debate for lunch and then mm -mm, I wipe the corners of my mouth and have some debate for dinner. That's wonderful, provided the person you're sitting across from also likes to eat debate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But if you happen to be in relationships with people who don't like to have debate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, my friend, you are removing garments on a cold day. You are not strengthening their souls. You are actually exhausting. So these are some, just some thoughts to get you started on all this. The point of wisdom literature is not that I can perfectly explode it. It's impossible because you need to think about your life, your relationships. If you're single, your friendships, your employers, your work relationships. If you're married, your spouses, your children, right? Like you've got to sit in it and like marinate in it. Like that steep tea that we talked about last week. I'm going to close with uh, some of these thoughts, with with some closing thoughts here. On the one hand, everything that I'm saying creates a sense of longing, and then on the other hand, it can be crushing. It's longing because we long for deep, rich relationships, and it can be crushing because when we look at the standard, we're like, oh my goodness, I fall quite short of that. At least that's my reaction, is to kind of go through these things. It's difficult. So where do we get the power for this? The gift and grace for friendship is that united to Christ, we are called friends of God. You know, the night before Jesus' crucifixion in John 15, when he was explaining his plan to to go to the cross, his plan and his purpose, his death, it's all put in the context of friendship. 
Greater love has no one than this than to lay their life down for their friends. Guess where I'm going? I'm going to do that exact same thing, not just metaphorically and relationally and emotionally. He went to the cross to do it physically, of course. And this was not just some sort of, the cross is not an example. Oh, this is how much God loves us. That would be a really strange example. The cross is substitutionary atonement. There is justice at the cross where Christ has to absorb the sin and the brokenness of all of humanity. And he's willing to do it. Absolutely willing to do it. All of a sudden, as Jesus says, as that continues, greater has no one, uh, no love than uh, those who lay down their life for their friend. He goes on to say, and I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. A servant doesn't know what their master is doing. And so in this context of tremendous friendship, suddenly all of life is in the context of friendship. Suddenly all of creation is the con- in the context of this loving friendship. That the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Godhead itself is this glorious picture of love and friendship through which the cosmos spun. And so we see that we were created in God's image for friendship. And in Genesis 3, we see God walking in the garden with his creation, walking with Adam. This picture of walking through life, this, this unmistakable metaphor of friendship. We see this. On the last few days, going to Gethsemane to the cross, Jesus is his friends are falling asleep on him. What did he do? When your friend betrays you, what do you do? What do we do when, when friends betray us? Well, we usually leave. What did God do? He didn't leave us. He moved towards us. We broke everything in Genesis 3 and God moved towards us at the end of Genesis 3. He moves towards us. Jesus is in Gethsemane. His friends are asleep. Then they're abandoning him. Then they're denying that they know him. Because of all of the sin and the brokenness in the world, Jesus has a choice. His choice is... I can go to the cross and absorb the guilt and take on the judgment of God and I can face death or hell or I cannot go to the cross and I can lose all my friends. And Jesus says, I'll take death and hell. Profound, deep and rich friendship. We don't have a God who's in heaven shouting down to us saying, be more loving, be better friends, guys. We have a God who came into our suffering and understands it intimately and calls us in congruence with him. And when you and I fail to be these kinds of friends in a great contradiction of what we deserve we receive the friendship of God on the cross Jesus was abandoned by God so that united to him we can say I am a friend of God by his grace we've been radically befriended with unfathomable love we are now church indwelled by his spirit so may we reflect his nature may we seek to be friends and ministers of his love here in this community and in the greater community let's pray